Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, Dr. Al Atkins, a first-year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, in for Dr. Aaron Parks, not joining us tonight. I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hey, Tosha. Hey, Alan, I just have to, I can't help myself. I have to comment. Your voice is so much more serious when you're like the lead host than when you're like uh, a co-host. It's pretty great. I just, I couldn't help myself. I had to say something. I'm a new man. It's really good. It's so, (laughs) it's so good. We'd also like to welcome here with us in the background, the newest member of our team, future physician, Yasmin Dakama. Hi, everyone. Helping make our show happen. Hey, sorry. That's all right. (laughs) The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, Riverside, or UCR's School of Medicine. On today's show, we have with us Dr. Iman Aledrus. Iman is a recent psychiatry graduate from Kaiser Permanente's Southern California Psychiatry Residency. She recently gave a regionally attended ground rounds talk regarding the neuropsychiatric complications of COVID-19. She had specific experience through this pandemic, working with the hospital bioethics team through the creation of evolving guidelines relating to COVID-19. Iman is going to continue to share her pandemic bioethics experiences and treatment ideas for part two of this two-part series. And with that, I'll pass it to you, Tosh. Yeah, so Iman, I think in the last episode, I was just like jumping at the bit to hear about what the status of treatments are for neuropsychiatric symptoms related to COVID. So I can't wait to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah, I think that is the question on everyone's minds. And so because at this point, we've had, I believe the numbers are 93 million cases within the US Mm. of people who have now had COVID. Um, And so, you know, there's obviously a huge fallout from that. And to treat the illness, um, we kind of have to think about what we're dealing with, which is inflammation. And so right now, our understanding of the disease and the neuropsychiatric complications is that COVID is causing systemic inflammation, including, um, you know, directly affecting our brain and causing inflammation within the brain, which is leading to depression, anxiety, psychosis, you know, worsening of of different uh, mood disorders. And so with that theory, then we are able to look into medications that may, you know, help with those symptoms. And so again, none of this is really, you know, an official guideline. None of this is fully understood right now. We're just kind of going off of what we understand of the disease. And so all of this is very much emerging, developing. The papers are like churning out 
you know, as oh, we gosh, speak, yeah. you know, totally. they're, they're not even really done. So with that theory of brain inflammation, um, several SSRIs are hypothesized to have anti-inflammatory properties. Mm. And that includes uh, Prozac is being investigated, fluvoxamine is being investigated, and they have specific cytokines that they actually decrease. Um, and so with that theory, we are trying to decrease inflammation within the brain. And so again, these are very much emerging studies, just kind of, you know, case reports here and there or smaller studies, but uh, that these SSRIs may help with some of that brain inflammation. I have to say, when I saw fluvoxamine in the news as a psychiatrist, as a psychiatrist, I was like, hey, that's us. Hey. So, okay. So, so, so there has been this kind of raging back and forth about whether depression is an inflammatory illness. And there have been, there have been there for a while it was very popular to think so. And then some major, some trials were done with like really serious immunomodulators. Um, and I don't think they had much effect. And then there was later, I think they found like that a specific subtype of depression may have some inflammatory component and that that subtype may respond somewhat to some anti-inflammatory meds. And so this sounds like either if this is just COVID specific, where there's going to be this COVID specific post COVID brain inflammation that, that happens to result in depression, but maybe has a different, um, kind of pathophysiology than standard major depression, or maybe this is going to be a feather in the cap of the pro inflammation camp of depression theories in general. What do you think, Iman? I think, uh, that again, uh, not all of it is fully understood. So yes, <laughs> one of the old school theories was that depression is this like low grade inflammatory state and that it may be why SSRIs sort of help with that. And, and, you know, from, we are psychiatrists, so we can see, you know, just how it does help our patients and, in terms of the COVID neuropsych symptoms, we're looking into not just SSRIs, SNRIs, TCAs, but also antioxidant medications, um, alpha-2 modulators, maybe lithium. And then, you know, again, very much emerging for this long COVID uh, thoughts about, you know, should we treat this with stimulants? Should we treat this with, um, for the elderly populations, should we start treating this as a dementia and get them on denepazil, uh, mementine? And it's very just unclear right now. It's very nebulous, to be honest. Uh, but, you know, and, and again, each wave has behaved a little bit differently too. Oh, that's a great point. Mm. I, I want to go back to the fluvoxamine. Um, so what has fluvoxamine been shown to do? From my understanding, uh, it has multiple different cytokines that it decreases within the brain. And so that helps or is theorized to help with the acute phase of COVID. So instead of your brain and your body kind of ramping up this huge response, it does 
temper that a little bit. And that does help with the fallout. So that's my understanding. And it's not just fluvoxamine. I believe several um, SSRIs are being investigated, uh, including citalopram. Um, but fluvoxamine seems pretty promising. The one that is interestingly not good is paroxetine. So we don't like to use that one. Uh, anyway, and that one, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just actually another, uh, <laughs> just another point for bullying. Exactly, it seems yeah. like it's actually pro-inflammatory. So do not use that one. Yikes. That explains a lot. Um, so my um, my from what I read, the fluvoxamine has been shown to decrease hospital days, like for the acute COVID patient. Is that is that right? Like it's more treating general COVID symptoms, not just neuropsych symptoms of COVID. Correct. Correct. And uh, I, I believe there are some studies out about that. And it's, it's, it's just interesting to see fluvoxamine kind of back in the mix because that yeah. is a medication <laughs> I barely we use. Don't really use. Yeah, <laughs> we don't use that much. So I don't even know how that, um, besides kind of like the postulated theory that it is anti-inflammatory, how people just kind of started kicking that back in. But um, it uh, there are now emerging case studies that it can reduce just the severity of illness. Yeah, that's crazy. Tell me about stimulants and neuropsych symptoms. It's a great question. I I would love to give you a, a you know slam dunk answer of that that we should or we shouldn't. And I think a lot of you know you're within sort of the child and adolescent realm, and then there's the other side of it, which is more of the geriatric realm. And they are a bit stuck with some of these patients um, and not knowing kind of where to go when some of the other medication options aren't helping or aren't doing much. Mm -hmm. um, this is a person who just cannot complete tasks anymore, cannot remember things anymore. And so you do, you may want to explore those things mm -hmm. if that's something that would be safe for the patient and that they could tolerate. I think uh, it's worth considering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was kind of thinking about using, stimulants for brain fog in a long COVID situation, kind of similar to how we might use stimulants after a traumatic brain injury. Yeah. And uh, again, the jury's out on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I would say right now it's sort of a neutral thing because mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to tip the inflammation um, in a worse direction. So it doesn't that's seem good. to be harmful. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I spoke with a geriatrician and they were just like, I wish people would stop referring to us um, mm -hmm. a couple weeks after COVID or a couple months after COVID because mm -hmm. in their experience, it's going to take, many months to recover. And so their recommendation is just kind of hold off, just tell the patient, you know, to keep engaging in their daily activities, keep active, uh, you know, do sort of like games and things that kind of get their brain going, mm. but not to immediately refer them um, for like a dementia workup or those other types of and workups, their recommendation is just kind of hang in there, give it time. 
If you're just joining us, this is Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking about uh, treatments and sequelae of COVID-19 from a neuropsychiatric standpoint with Dr. Iman Ali Drews. Back to you, Iman. So yeah, just to resume um, on sort of using stimulant medications or cognitive enhancers, um, I was saying that as, as far as we know, doesn't seem to be harmful, but unclear if it's helpful. What okay. about um, supplements? What about like talk therapy, anything uh, that's been studied along those lines that may be helpful? Again, this is all a little still in the research phase, uh, all a little more speculative, but, um, you know, there are different supplements that are being investigated, uh, vitamin C, um, and then in terms of just like rehabilitation, that's always going to be good. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, both physical rehabilitation, occupational rehab, uh, speech rehab, if they need that olfactory rehab is a thing. So, um, you know, I recently met someone who got COVID during the Delta variant and never regained his sense of smell. And uh, that can be very debilitating for someone. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot is a lot of different medications are being explored in terms of like, should we put them on steroids? Should we uh, try intranasal sprays for that. So unclear benefit on those, including the steroids. Um, but right now just sort of rehabilitating is, is absolutely a good idea. Yeah. And like you mentioned just a few minutes ago, that cognitive rehab too could be really helpful. Um, in the, a lecture from the APA annual meeting from 2022 that I mentioned um, in the last episode, those speakers uh, identified luteolin and nicotinamide as being having some, I don't know, that's being studied as well as a possibility. And then they also brought up CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which surprised me. I think that's always good. I think we all need a little (laughs) CBT. (laughs) So I think uh, that is always helpful. And I would definitely encourage that. um, For sure. I think you could see the CBT from from a few angles. I I have to admit, I was initially disappointed when CBT uh, was, when I saw CBT on the list, because I was, it, it, it makes you think like, okay, this is going to be like the rest of depression where it's really hard to treat and um, where the effect sizes are going to be similar to therapy, where I I guess because it was coming from this kind of um, systemic inflammation, pulmonology kind of world, I was thinking like, oh, well, maybe with this, we're going to be able to hit it with something and have the kind of efficacy that, that, that folks in the in the world of antibiotics can expect, you know, like these 90% or whatever efficacy or or it went probably higher than much higher than that. Um, But what's cool about it is the thought that, okay, we can do this, the neuroplasticity um, 
stuff here just as we can with depression, where maybe CBT is actually lowering that inflammation, not just from hmm. the therapy itself, but maybe from behavioral activation and getting people to do exercise, which Iman called out on our last episode as something that aids the glymphatic system in filtering a lot of that hmm. COVID uh, uh, schmutz out of the brain. Hmm, that's a good point. So what about future direction, Iman? What, what are we talking, what are we looking at or interested in, in terms of looking at clinical applications or, mm. or where research may go in the future? I think to understand the future, it is very important to look at the past. This is not the first pandemic we've gone through and it, I wish it were the last, it may not be, but it is really helpful to look back. And so uh, the last, you know, big one that we have a lot of data on is the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918. Okay. And so, you know, um, that we didn't fully understand the effects of that pandemic for years. Sure. And so that includes in utero exposure of COVID. And so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, sorry, of um, Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. And so women were, you know, um, infected while pregnant. And so then the years later, there was a huge spike in schizophrenia and mm. uh, as well as movement disorders, sleep disorders, and other okay. psychotic illnesses. So there was this huge burden of disease that happened with that subsequent generation that, you know, you didn't even realize um, what was happening. And it had huge societal impacts on education, economic productivity, and um right now we aren't really sure what will happen to babies from that were exposed in utero we don't know yeah that's that's interesting i mean speaking about inflammation and the research being done as to how inflammation plays a role in the development of mental health disorders that is a huge area study of study in relation to schizophrenia. Um, I think there's some considerations that we're thinking about that have that, that come to mind when we think about pandas too, right? Exactly. So pandas is uh, something that you you may you probably see as a child and adolescent, but uh, children who were exposed to group A strep uh, may go on to have sort of a tick disorder, OCD related disorders as a result. And again, all of this kind of goes back to inflammation. These illnesses, yeah. these bacterial illnesses, viral illnesses. Uh, cause inflammation within the brain and that can cause a whole world of issues. And so, you know, again, most likely the mechanism of that spike in schizophrenia after the Spanish influenza was um, due to some pathway of inflammation. It's like the kind of the diathesis stress thing where you might already have had some kind of predisposition to schizophrenia and then maybe that prenatal insult or otherwise is enough of a of an a hit to actually cause phenotypic manifestation exactly so 
Again, it's not something we're going to fully understand for years, and uh, but it just cannot be ignored either. And in terms of, uh, you know, again, kind of going back to my bioethics experience within on the bioethics committee within the hospital, we would see that side of things, kind of like uh, pregnant women making decisions whether, you know, um, they would get the life-saving uh, treatments if things started deteriorating or if they wanted the fetus to be saved. And so that was something that is just like this whole new emerging field um, because usually these conflicts are not so severe. So that was one thing we were seeing. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we're winding down on the time we have left. I wanted to um, ask you, Iman, were there any other stories from your work, either on the bioethics committee or um, from your work uh, on the outpatient side of things? I know you mentioned following up some patients that you saw in the hospital outpatient. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... One of the things that was kind of crazy when I was working within the bioethics uh, committee was seeing sort of how different uh, like pop culture narratives can influence like mm -hmm. our decision making. And so, yeah, um, I was working during the um, Delta wave of COVID. And so this was post vaccine vaccine was available. And uh, there was, you know, this very severe wave of COVID kind of sweeping through and, and leaving a wave of, of destruction and death and disability, including in young people. And what we were seeing in the COVID ICU was Patients who had refused vaccination do a lot to Joe Rogan, kind of. Like they actually mentioned his name. Correct. Oh. Not just that, but um, then they would, you know, very specifically be asking for ivermectin, which was, you know, never really proven to be helpful or, you know, have any type of desirable outcomes. And so, you know, it was very dystopic and unsettling to see people sort of gasping for air, becoming slowly yeah. hypoxic um, because they had listened to this figure who was not a physician and, and not really medically um, trained, knowledgeable right. about what yeah. he was saying. It was terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Did ivermectin, uh, did ivermectin sort of mildly get vindicated in one study in Europe or something, or am I making that up? I think it did, but there was like a lot in the, on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of risks. And also there was like a shortage for things that it actually, that actually really required it. And it was efficacious for, right. Right. Yeah. Is that true? Oh, okay. I, if I'm, yeah. That is not that <laughs> that's not fact. That's what I am thinking I'm remembering. <laughs> cool. And and basically like 
with all of my patients, and I know some of them may have like ideologic beliefs that conflict with this or, or, you know, their own reasons for being hesitant about vaccination. But what we are understanding is even with long COVID and these really, you know, they're weeks out, they're months out, and they're still dealing with sequelae from, you know, some type of neuropsychiatric complication from COVID, there is research that getting vaccinated can actually reduce that symptom burden significantly. Some people just go back to normal. So, you know, as much as we can, as clinicians kind of keep pushing that, I know it's hard and I know, you know, it's, it's a sensitive subject, but um, encouraging vaccination. And, and again, the best thing would be to never get the illness to begin with and you wouldn't have to deal with all of this. For sure. For sure. We only have a couple minutes left. Anything else, Amon, that you think would be interesting? I think just exercise, um, you know, keep getting that blood flow going as much as you can. Uh, Cerebral blood flow is good uh, and it will wash out a lot of that bad stuff. Uh, get vaccinated. And uh, again, just give your body time to heal would be, you know, what I would say uh, as a psychiatrist and, and to my patients, just give it time. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we discussed the neuropsychiatric sequelae of COVID-19 and some of the treatments Thank you to my co-host, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. We would also like to thank our guest, um, Dr. Iman Ali Drews, for joining us. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write to us at getpsychedonkucr@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please subscribe and post a review. You can listen to extended versions of our show or past episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, Dr. Alan Atkins. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.